0: Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting
1: patreon.com
0: slash Bowery Boys.
1: Hi there. This is Greg Young, and welcome to the Bowery Boys podcast. This month marks the 185th anniversary of one of the most devastating disasters in New York City history. Now, when you think of great fires, infernos of massive size, which have befallen cities, you might think of the Great Fire of London in 1666, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, or the San Francisco Earthquake and Fire of 1906. But New York has had its own deadly blazes, and we'll be discussing one of those here, the Great Fire of 1835 one which destroyed 17 city blocks and threatened to wipe New York City off the map. The fire began on a chilly evening on December 16th, 1835. And what you're about to hear on this show is a retelling of these dire events. A terrible blaze fought during impossibly challenging conditions. There are two years I want you to remember during this show, 1835, which is the year of the fire, and 2009, which was the year that Tom and I recorded this show. So it was recorded less than eight years after September 11th, 2001. But I think it's very possible to hear this show today and find some things that reverberate here in the hellish year of our Lord, 2020. And stay tuned until the end of the show, because in a newly recorded section, I'm adding another story about a troubling fire which occurred in almost exactly the same place 10 years after the 1835 Great Fire. So let's wind back the clock and revisit the story of the Great Fire of 1835. So let me back up here, Tom, and, uh, uh, you know, give you a little brief recap of sort of the fire history of the island of Manhattan up until 1835, get you up to that point. Now, New York, as in like, you know, all pre-industrial cities are, let's just say they're very flammable. Exactly how are they flammable? Well, I mean, you're talking about up until this time, a city of mostly wooden structures that are all built closely together. Mm People have torches and lanterns. You also don't have like proper fire safety codes at this time and right. those types of precautions. As and
0: tiny little streets that have sort of grown with the city from its from its earliest days. So not easy to get through with fire carts and such.
1: Fire spreads very easily in a city like New York. I mean, fire's been with New York almost since the beginning. As a matter of fact, the first documented fire was in sixteen twenty eight. New York's barely just a few years old at that time, so...
0: We'll have to really look that one up for episode 720.
1: (laughs) The first fire of New York City. You know, by, by 1648, the town of New Amsterdam was already passing these city ordinances for fire prevention... Ah, uh, primarily, believe it or not, a lot of these fires were because people had wooden chimneys that they weren't cleaning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was the what well, the first fire ordinance was that everyone needed to, by law, had to clean their chimneys between the fort and the fresh water. So everyone basically between Fort Amsterdam, uh-huh. you know, at the foot of the island, up to the quote fresh water, up to collect Pond. So oh, anything right. in yeah. between there was under this law to clean the chimneys. Um, you know, when there was a fire, I mean, what did they have to fight it with? They had these crude leather fire buckets, very basic, rudimentary equipment, no, ho- you know, no real hoses to speak of. But one benefit that New York's always had is it's surrounded by water, of course.
0: The rivers would certainly come in handy, you know, if a fire would break out, say, when it's not freezing outside
1: and you have access to the water. And there's also wells and cisterns that would also be used for this. Now, around 1657 is when the sort of first, what you could call, not really a fire department, but people who are actually out looking for fires, they actually called these men the rattle watch, because they would walk the streets from dusk until dawn. There was sort of like a police slash fire department, and they called them the rattle watch, believe it or not, because they actually had these large rattles. That they would wear on the side. And when something happened, when there was like a fire, they would just shake these rattles. And so everyone would just jump up and react to what was happening. Wow. They also called these men prowlers because they also tended to sometimes get up to mischief on top of watching their own city.
0: Were they only allowed to rattle their sticks if they if they spotted a fire? Or well, it was I, all, any kind of
1: trouble. Oh, all all sorts of trouble. You know, like a, a a fight, a marauding group of pigs or something. I don't know. By the way, another ordinance at this time had that each citizen of the town of New Amsterdam, before they went to bed, had to put three buckets of water out on their porch just in case a fire happened. So they could run and get these buckets of water. Wow! Um, so with the British takeover, there was they still hadn't necessarily improved the methods of fighting fire. However, I was I will say in 1731. But the British did get their very first hand fire engine. Have you seen these these old antique fire engines with a little pump. pump on them? Yes. Interestingly, back then, it was actually the mayor and the aldermen of the city who were actually in charge of storing these. Like, there wasn't really a fire department. So it was, it was up to the mayor and himself to kind of store these things. So five years later... New York actually got its very first fire station, believe it or not, which is on the very street and block as the New York Stock Exchange. Now, up during British occupation, there were, there were two major fires that affected New York City. The first one was in 1741. We call this the Great Conspiracy of 1741. There were a series of fires that were purposefully set, including one that was at Fort George, which was the former Fort Amsterdam when the British took over. They called it Fort George. A fire was set there, and many other homes and businesses were destroyed, but they were purposefully set. Um, this was a bit of arson. So, with, through whispers and rumors, everyone thought that it was some kind of a slave revolt, a plot mm. between slaves and some poor whites. So, a massive witch hunt went on at this time. There were several people who were killed. Two were burned at the stake because of this, because they thought it was this, they had to squash this. Awful plot, which of course didn't really happen. It was all a bunch of hysteria. That was the first major fire. Then, of course, we've covered the second one, Tom, if you remember, which happened on September 21st and 22nd in 1776. This happened a little bit after the Continental Army fled Manhattan when the British came in and took it over. The fire started at a tavern called the Fighting Cox Tavern on Whitehall Street. It destroyed between 400 and 500 buildings, or basically one quarter of the entire city. This was not started by the Continental Army. You know, this was a this was a really horrible fire because, of course, not only was a quarter of the city destroyed, but it was like, the city was filled with people at this time and a lot of the influx of war refugees and all of these soldiers. Right. The fire was extinguished by the British Navy, but the, the the thing to remember about this particular fire, about what we're about to talk about, this fire happened in kind of a nice fall day. Um, it wasn't the per- the, the, the fire of seventeen seventy six in September. It was a nice fall day. You know, there were still crude firefighting methods at this time. But you had hundreds of men in the city, and they were all soldiers. They were all prepared to take Ready care to of to fight this. a fire. So they yeah. were able to stop it before it got worse, I and mean, it got really terrible. The original Trinity Church was burnt down. Lots of other things were burnt down. I'm not saying this was a not a bad fire, but compared to what we're about to talk about, it could have been worse. So, Tom, get us up to speed then of what life is like in 1835.
0: Well, so the city of New York was at this point about a quarter of a million people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to remember that the Erie Canal had come into the picture, into the city, and had been a boom to the city's economy. It was only
1: like 10 years old at this time, right? So they were really reaping the benefits now, profits.
0: Right, and it meant that all of these exporters from the city, all these manufacturers, uh, really benefited from being able to ship to the rest of the country. So the city was filled with factories and with merchants of all kinds. So much trade was flourishing, and of course the stock exchange, or the merchants' exchange, as it was called then. However, there was also a serious water shortage because Collect Pond had been covered over what three decades before that, right? Right, drained, and then of course on top of it had been built all of these apartment buildings or residences that started to sink into the land because it was never properly drained. And rich people were fleeing that neighborhood, and of course taking their place were the newly arrived, mostly Irish immigrants who were fleeing their own potato famine. So we had this sort of dynamic happening, people were actually selling water in the street. Men would go around with carts and sell buckets of it in the street, except this particular December that we're talking about in 1835, it was so cold that at the, the week of the fire, people couldn't even walk around selling water. The temperatures were freezing. Some reports two days before the fire that the temperature had actually fallen to 17 degrees
1: below zero, I did, I which seems really that incredible. That seems inc- I mean, it's, it was a cold winter here in New York this year, but that's... I have never quite experienced that. Just
0: three years before, in the summer of 1832, the young city of New York had experienced a terrible cholera breakout. It, it left the city empty. I mean, half the city fled that summer. Other people couldn't even get out of the city. Uh, The the poorest people were stuck in five points, uh, couldn't really take off. Well, 4,000 people died uh, during the June to October 1832 cholera epidemic. And that really didn't number also on the city's police and fire force. But there still were firemen. However, two days before the fire of 1835, on December 14th, There was another fire, and it had depleted resources that were already pretty feeble.
1: Now, we should mention that when you say fire department, it's not exactly what we would consider fire department today. I should have said firefighters. Because there was mostly a volunteer organization, correct? Right. And they weren't getting paid. Right. It was very disorganized. It was very localized. Well, th- weren't there competing groups? <laughs> yes, and that would actually continue to be a little bit of a problem even a little bit after the story. It wasn't organized in the way that it seems logical that ours is organized today, if that makes any sense. So it's December 16th, and it's 9pm at night, and it is freezing in the city. It's very dark.
0: and Most this- people have gone to sleep.
1: We're in the area of the city that is a little bit below Wall Street in this sort of eastern area of what we call the financial district today. So basically like Wall Street with Broad Street sort of being the the western edge of the area we're talking about and then of course like South Street or the edge of the water would be the eastern part of what mm. the area we're talking about.
0: And this area was mostly filled with trading houses with factories and warehouses and merchants and, I- and some residences.
1: Some, but a lot of the uh, a lot of these merchants who would normally have lived above their shops, for instance, you know, this is now an era where they're able to like move you know, have right. a house as separate from their own from their own shops. Right. There is a watchman walking through the streets, and his name is William Hayes. And, you know, he's probably got a cloak on. It's really cold. He's got a lantern just walking these dark city streets. And, you know, his job is to sort of patrol You can probably see his breath because it's so cold. He probably wants to go in, smoke his pipe, and, you know, maybe have a mug of beer. When he gets to the corner of Pearl Street and Exchange Street, which is no longer there, it's today's Beaver Street. Mm -hmm. When he gets to this intersection, uh, precisely at a building at 25 Merchant Street... He notices that a building is on fire. It's actually this building for a dry goods store uh, called Comstock and Andrews. It's a five-story building, and one of the upper floors is on fire. Apparently what happened is there was a broken gas line that had uh, burst sometime during the early evening. It had ignited some coals that were on a stove. So this fire started raging. He noticed it. He ran and he got some help. By the time he got back, unfortunately, this little fire that had just been in one building was spreading rapidly. This is the dry goods district of Manhattan. So it's, you know, it's close to the piers and you can sell the merchandise right there in these stores. Within a few minutes, the fire starts raging. Within 30 minutes of finding this fire, it had already spread to 50 buildings. It was quickly moving because the biggest enemy that night wasn't just the fire. It was the fact that it was really windy. And this wind was carrying the fire just almost as... You could just see it, like, Mm. jumping from building to building. And there was just nothing you could do because it was on some of these upper floors.
0: Mm. And the buildings were filled with fabrics
1: and... The worst possible things you can imagine that are just going to be flammable and just explode into flames the moment that one of these embers lands upon it. By 10 p.m., one hour after the fire was first discovered, 40 stores were totally blazing. And so, volunteer firemen were getting their stuff together to like fight this blaze. What they're dealing with, it's just it's, I can't underscore this, how horrible this night was. It was a winter hell. You had all this winds and the freezing. It prevented the firefighters from really doing their jobs.
0: Well, because they would rush over to the East River, which, of course, they're right next to but only a part of it was not frozen there was just a bit of a channel that that hadn't completely frozen over
1: and then, yeah so
0: how were they supposed to get water well they the-
1: well then they would they drilled holes into the ice which is just unbelievable just to get to like the water that wasn't frozen and mm. you know, they'd stick the water down and they'd they'd fill their engines and so when they actually did get water though the problem is you throw it onto the fire, but it's so windy that the water blew back into the firefighters, and right. it was just...
0: And it it would actually freeze on their bodies, and so there were firemen who were actually covered in ice.
1: And that's when there, the water was even able to be delivered, because sometimes the water would freeze in the hoses and in the buckets by the time it got there. Right,
0: and the firemen were actually sort of stomping up and down on their hoses, not only to keep their... F- feet from freezing, but also to try to get the water to break it up so that it could trickle out of those hoses.
1: I mean, at certain points, they just had to stand there and they would pour brandy in their boots just to sort of keep themselves warm, knowing that we can't fight this. And the sounds you must have heard, like the crackling of flames, people shouting, but this like brisk wind, the sound of buildings collapsing. If you were a business owner and your store was down here, what were you doing at this time? Well,
0: a lot of people were actually racing down. You know, the calls went out because all over the city, the bells were ringing. All the bells,
1: everybody, even the prison bells, city hall bells. Everyone was on high alert.
0: And people were racing down to their warehouses and to their stores to pull out the most valuable
1: merchandise
0: and put it in some kind of a safe haven.
1: Well, they were smashing open their windows and literally just tossing this merchandise into the street just to pick up. The problem with this, though, Tom, which is making the problem worse, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, as you said, a lot of this was like... Papers and twine and cloth, cloth of all different kinds. Some of this caught on fire, but because it's so small and transportable, it got caught up by the wind. Some of these, like, like little flaming bombs, almost got caught up by the wind, would land in boats on the East River. Some of it got as far away as Brooklyn, and some of the rooftops in on Brooklyn homes even caught on fire wow. from this
0: the fire grew so strong in fact that it was visible to the north in New Haven and as far away south as Philadelphia
1: and this is by midnight by this time so the fires now the fire just started three hours earlier now at midnight people are look, seeing it from Poughkeepsie they're seeing it from Philadelphia so naturally like not only are the New York firefighters embattled here but they're coming from all over the place now there was even a team from Philadelphia
0: By midnight, the burning area actually encompassed 17 blocks, so it was growing fast. It seemed like everybody in the city was out to help. Well, at first, it seemed like everybody in the city was out to help because private citizens were coming out with buckets and pails and tubs of water, you know, hoping to do something. There were more than 75 fire wagons and, and hose carts that were trudging their way th- through the snowy streets to
1: get to the scene. But are you saying that all of humanity here was united in one cause to uh, prevent this fire from spreading?
0: But not, not exactly, but we'll get to the looters in a second. Okay. But let, let's just think about the people, again, who owned merchandise, and they were watching their, their businesses burn to the ground. They... They were grabbing their silks, their satins, even their champagne, Greg, and heading over initially to Hanover Square, which was thought to be, you know, a safe spot. They were packing uh, a warehouse there full of goods, but soon flames actually jumped over buildings and spread to that warehouse too, consuming everything in the building. So, you know, other merchants took their goods and packed it into the merchant's exchange, oh, the no, stock exchange.
1: This is one of the bigger buildings in Manhattan at and, this time. And, right.
0: you know, it was a new structure in 1835, thought to be fireproof. Well, at 2 a.m., Sailors from the Navy Yard were actually there trying to rescue bits of the Merchant Exchange. They wanted to take an Alexander Hamilton statue. Oh right, there was—it
1: uh, was in the center of a, right, I recall, in the right, middle in the of the exchange. rotunda. Yes,
0: and they were trying to move it to safety because the Merchant Exchange had also caught on fire at that point. And somebody screamed as they were ha- trying to handle the the pedestal, and they had to race out of there. And the whole place just went up in flames and collapsed they were not injured because they got out just in the nick of time it appeared that nothing was safe you know others in fact had taken their merchandise over to the dutch reformed church on garden street and oh, no. an hour later 3 a.m. the fire had started in the church as well as soon as the edifice of the church actually started to flame up people started moving their merchandise out in the midst of this imagine the smoky dark flaming interior Legend has it that somebody crept up to the pipe organ and started playing a funeral dirge <laughs> in the midst of all of this chaos. How
1: uh, creepy. Yes,
0: and somehow appropriate. Then the church went up in flames as well. That was at about three. Okay,
1: so so people are fighting this blaze, but it doesn't sound like a lot of uh, good is being done so far. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
0: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles...
1: So, some of this merchandise was destroyed, some of it was saved. Well, and they kept moving it in and
0: out of these different buildings, you know, and so you can imagine the streets were then just strewn with all kinds of fabulous, fancy goods.
1: And, you know, keep in mind, it's icy and snowy, and people are trying to move this so that doesn't, uh, their stuff isn't destroyed. And keep
0: in mind that Five Points, the legendary neighborhood of hoodlums, was only, you know, a couple blocks away. So when the fire bells went off, it attracted a certain type. Who saw this as a real opportunity to, you know, get their hands on some good loot?
1: I have a quote, actually, from... He's, he would actually become a mayor of New York. His name is Philip Hone. He was one of New York's diarists, uh, yes. greatest diarists of the 19th century, of describing There's the a medicine you can take for that. <laughs> I, think, I, don't, I don't think he was on it. Or he, was, he might have been on it when he said this. Quote, "...the miserable wretches who prowled about the ruins and became beastly drunk on the champagne and other wines and liquors with which the streets and wharves were lined seemed to exult in the misfortune."
0: In fact, yes, turned into a sort of festive affair. There were thousands of people, crowds, that were shoving their way through the streets. Not all of them looters, of course. People who just wanted to see what was going on. The city was on fire.
1: Yeah, some people saw this as a horror show. Some people saw this as an opportunity. Right, and... All of the people were making,
0: for the most part, life more difficult for the firemen who were trying to put out the flames in the first place just because they were crowding the streets. Now, hoodlums and and criminals and their entourage came over and they were just kicking off actually a full day, about 24 hours of looting. Where they grabbed an estimated 10,000 bottles of champagne, smashing them, fighting over them, popping them open, drinking, pouring in the snow, getting wildly drunk as they just raged from burning warehouse to burning warehouse, grabbing whatever they could grab, stashing fine things under their clothes and moving on.
1: Delirious.
0: Yes. Well, after 24 hours, martial law was finally declared and Marines moved in. But, I mean, you can imagine, during that 24 hours, it was complete mayhem. In fact, six men were actually caught trying to spread the fire outside of the burning district with torches trying to light <laughs> oh other God. buildings on fire. One of them was promptly hanged from a tree, and he stayed there hanging, dangling in the wind for three days before the police got around to cutting him down.
1: That's a that's nightmarish. So it's 3 a.m. now. The, yes. the fire has been raging for almost six hours. Another area that had actually been ravaged by the flames were some of the early kind of newspaper row, the newspaper district. A lot of the newspapers were up in flames. Right. So some of them, some of them escaped, but one of the newspapers that was sort of battling the flames was a paper called the New York American. The editor of this newspaper's name was Charles King. Well, I mean, understandably, he was completely freaking out. He was running around. He was observing the chaos, not just the the flames themselves, but all of this madness that was going on, all the looting, but also sort of the ineffectual firefighting that was going on. Everything just looked absolutely h- hopeless, and... He ran to the mayor. the The, the mayor and the aldermen had come down, and they were doing something. And you know, and Charles was a prominent citizen, so he could run up to the mayor. Right. Um, the mayor at the time during was, a fire. The mayor at the time was named Cornelius Van Wyck Lawrence, and. Wow. He ran up to Cornelius and he he actually had a radical idea. And that idea was the only way you're going to stop the fire. And this sounds a little odd, I'm sure Corn- Cornelius was just like, "What are you talking about? Blow up some of the buildings that are in the path. Like see see which direction the fire is going. Blow up the buildings that are right before there so that it has a sort of a hole." That's created, so the mm, fire can't a void. Ju- the avoid, so the fire can't jump over the hole and and catch on to the next buildings. So it's just stopping it in its path, but doing it in a very destructive manner. Mm. This was a very risky idea. I mean, was this was controversial to say the least?
0: Sure, but I mean, at that moment, obviously, it looked like the entire city could go up in flames.
1: Well, they had to try something, so they they sent people out to retrieve um, some explosives and some gunpowder, and there was huge caches of gunpowder and red hook. So they went to get them there. And also, there was some in Governor's Island. Mm. So they went to both these places to to get it. Now, keep in mind, how are they bringing it back? They have the icy waters of the East River. They had to go out and get the gunpowder, and then they had to come back with it. But then there was all this fire, and so some of this could, could jump into the boats and ignite some of this gunpowder. So what you had is you had some of these firemen taking off their outer garments down to their underwear oh. in this sub-freezing temperatures putting this clothing over the big barrels of explosives just to prevent them from catching on fire in the water. They did manage to bring uh, these explosives over to Manhattan. Charles King and some of these city officials located a store that would be a perfect place for this. It it was situated in such a place that if they blew up this one building and it was a dry goods store at 48 Exchange Place, if they blew up this building, the fire would conceivably stop and not jump across the street on Broad Street. Because if if it moved past Broad Street, this fire actually could actually keep going west and hit Broadway, and that in that way we'd almost like take over the whole length of the island. Right. So by five a.m. the fuses were ready and the explosives were set. The chief fire engineer of the city, though, he refused to do this. He's like, "Well, I I can't I can't blow up buildings. I don't think this is going to work." And so the mayor was like, "Well." I don't really want to do it. I'm not going to do it. So eventually, this kind of got passed down the line. And so finally, this man named James Hamilton was just like, okay, you know what? Fine. I'll do it. Now, interestingly, you had mentioned that a statue of Alexander Hamilton had been destroyed at the Merchants Exchange. Yes. James is his son. His son? Alexander Hamilton's son then blew up the building.
0: Did he have any official elected role, or was he just...
1: He was an official and a prominent citizen. So, I mean, he wasn't just some random person up the, up the street, but he also had an exalted position. There was a certain sort of symbolism to, you know, a, the son of a founding sure. son of New York kind of person. So, right. so that's stopping the fire traveling too far west. Then to stop the fire from traveling north, it's, the fire has gotten almost up to Wall Street. It has caught a building on fire that I think you know quite well that I just mentioned earlier, the Tontine Coffee House, mm-hmm. the original home of the Stock Exchange. It started catching on fire, and this would have been deadly because this meant the fire was traveling north, because this is north where these other blazing buildings were. Um, luckily, however, there were firefighters on hand there, and they did were able to douse the flames. They had a little bit of extra incentive. Now, I've read two different sources. One of them says it was an owner, one of the owners of the Taunting Coffee House, as we know there's many owners. Um, another one says it was just simply a passerby who was like... You have to stop the blaze here. If you can stop the blaze at the Taunting Coffee House, I will donate one hundred dollars to the Volunteer Firefighting Fund. So, with that little dangling incentive, sure enough, they uh, they doused the flames, and the Taunting Coffee House was it was damaged, but it was pretty much saved. It took another twenty four hours from this time. For the fire to really be controlled. I mean, the entire day of December 17th, the fire was still raging. The the skies above New York were just clogged with black smoke. For the whole day, people were afraid that this fire was going to reignite in some way, but mm. they did—they did end up controlling it. Uh, you know, by December eighteenth, it was pretty much all done.
0: That there were still last dying flames, I think, up to two weeks after it started. They were oh. still putting out little, little flames.
1: God, how terrifying! Because any of those things could have just ignited to another fire. I mean, any moment. So,
0: well, the day after the fire, business, obviously as usual, was suspended. Uh, the stock market was obviously closed because it had burned and collapsed. Thousands and thousands of people came out of their homes the next day and came down to the burn district of 17 blocks, 52 acres of lower Manhattan, to see what had happened. They were looking at South Street, Front Street, Pearl Street, Stone, Beaver, Water, Merchant, and Hanover. All of these streets, the entire south side of Wall Street, from William Street to South Street burned and charred, looking at the remains of these warehouses and factories and their trading house, and thinking really that first day that the city could never recover from this, because this was their financial and their commercial center. There were six hundred and ninety three buildings that had been burned well, it
1: just must have looked impossible i mean how do you how do you clear all that away and start over like right. from the at least from the, that first week, I can definitely see that perspective
0: right and with an estimated loss of twenty to twenty five million dollars in eighteen thirty five dollars, the amount that was insured ten million dollars by different fire insurance companies at the time was just so. High that there was no way that the insurance companies could repay those losses, and many of these insurance companies, most of them, went out of business. As did many of the banks. Well,
1: many of those insurance companies had buildings in that were there anyway, right. so they right. couldn't insure themselves. Like they were completely wiped off the map.
0: And you know, many of the factories had to close permanently because they couldn't collect their insurance. They couldn't get money from the banks to buy new merchandise, and so there was just a very sad scene of people returning to their factories and to their shops, and they didn't know how they would move on. This actually led to another topic, which we'll have to talk about, the Panic of 1837, two years later. This was one of the key things that led into it.
1: What's amazing to me, with all this damage, all these buildings, only two people died, Right, which is an extraordinary figure. This fire, there was like a much smaller fire that had happened two days before, mm-hmm. which you mentioned. Um, like five people died in that fire and it was a much smaller blaze. It's just, it's amazing. Again, this
0: was not a residential area. Uh, so I think that that, that helped In a sense, well, if it's
1: one thing that you're, you know, we're lucky for. I mean, this could have been a could have been terribly catastrophic.
0: And you know, there were a certain number of residences in this district, and this is yet another thing that would push even those people, the remaining people downtown, to move uptown to more fashionable residential districts and get out of that commercial. So as the
1: area was rebuilt, this is yeah. So now we're getting to really the long-lasting effects of what this fire is, and that's one of them. Like this area from here on out really stop being residential in any way. Um, it's funny because now you go down there and there's all these new there's new condos and things. It's right. almost like returning a little bit back sure. to how it used to be. One of the things that was, of course, permanently changed by this was the, the water supply. I mean, that was the big problem, was getting water to fight this fire because of the because of the freezing cold, and also keep in mind that cholera epidemic that you had just mentioned. Between the two of these things, it was like New York has to improve its water supply. It just had to. So two years later began the construction of the Croton Aqueduct, Mm -hmm. which would bring water down from Westchester County and um, would distribute fresh water through a series of reservoirs into the city. Because of this tragedy, fire organizations improved and the equipment improved a state authorized fire department was actually organized in 1865 with the city version so the i guess the birth of the New York Fire Department of New York City was in 1870, mm-hmm. so things were steadily improving there. But I think most important was really the rebuilding efforts of this area. So, so a week after, and you're looking at the area, like how can we possibly re- rebuild this? Well, keep in mind, you know, there's all of this money coming in from the Erie Canal, and you know, New York is still building as a as a financial empire.
0: And some money came from the state. The federal government, I don't believe, gave any money to the rebuilding effort. And again, I mean, I almost get shivers when I'm even <laughs> saying that, you know, there's so much happening. But let's just say it's such a poignant subject now just thinking of rebuilding in this area, federal money, state
1: money coming into it and, and an area that does recover what's interesting is part of the what made people move back to this area like want to build their like build their offices here again was that the city had promised to widen the streets because these were very very narrow streets for they were very close together it was part of the reasons that the fire spread so quickly so the city promised to widen the streets and that actually made room for like for the opportunity to build really modern structures. Believe it or not, the price of the real estate in this area skyrocketed mm. in the years following the Great Fire. These old Dutch structures that had been there for like a couple hundred years, they were all replaced with these brand new Greek revivalist structures, these big, mighty bank structures. Mm. Some of which are still there today. Yeah, many of them are. A, a great example the street the street i had mentioned earlier where you can kind of see the evidence of the great fire yeah. but one of the most charming streets in fi- the financial district stone street you know it has the uh, like those b- taverns and restaurants I on it it's passed. a nice little street most of the buildings on that street were built in 1836 mm-hmm. they were built the year after the fire and most of them are still standing um, and they were built sort of like with this in mind that it was going to be less of a residential area and more of a place for for just true commerce. Other buildings that were replaced with more elaborate structures were, for instance, Delmonico's original restaurant had been was destroyed in the fire. They rebuilt into this triangular building that's still down there today, right off of Beaver Street. A new merchant exchange building was built, and um, you know all the riches that were gleaned from the. Erie Canal profits were poured right into all these fantastic buildings, and of course, it became a, a home for banks and for all these financial institutions. You know, It's almost like it cleared away the past, it sort of knocked everything off the table and started over again, it sort of created a clean canvas for the new urban environment that would develop. And this, the the shape of the financial district today is in part because of what happened here in the fire and how people reacted to it afterwards. The devastating results of the monstrous Great Fire of 1835 helped change the course of Manhattan, hastening the residential migration up the island, rewriting the architectural nature of downtown, and essentially erasing the past. There would never be another fire of this intensity and magnitude ever again. But New York didn't suddenly become fireproof. In fact, Ten years later, came another massive blaze in almost the exact same place in New York. A fire that threatened to halt downtown's rebirth before it even began. Today, we call this event the Great Fire of 1845. But if we're being technically more specific, it's actually the Great Explosion of 1845. It occurred before the crack of dawn on Saturday, July 19th, 1845, on the third floor of a whale oil store on New Street, only a couple blocks from where the Great Fire of 1835 had started. Now, whale oil was a highly in-demand product in the mid-19th century, used as lamp fuel and lubricants for industrial machinery there was a chance that someone could have doused this one in time. It's the summertime, sunlight creeping onto the horizon, and an influx of people going about their early morning business likely might have ensured that the blaze would have been swiftly contained in other circumstances. Unfortunately, a warehouse owned by the merchants Crocker and Warren, just one block away at 38 Broad Street, was filled with a new shipment of saltpeter used for the manufacture of gunpowder. That fire from the Whale Oil Store then wafted into Crocker and Warren's through an opening in one of the store's open iron shutters. And the result was a series of cannon-like bursts of smoke and fire, almost like a volcano, smashing into buildings across the street. It culminated in a terrible final explosion, completely engulfing the block. One breathless account in the New York Tribune reports, quote, We have this moment returned from the scene of the conflagration, with eye, ear, and brain oppressed with the sublime and appalling spectacle. The whole area between Broad Street, Exchange Place, Beaver Street, and Broadway, and up Broadway to the Waverly House, is one vast amphitheater of blood-red flame, sweeping like a hurricane on fire, falling walls, smoke, and cinders, flying like gigantic meteors, all ways at once. Another account described it as, quote, an immense body of flame. It instantly penetrated at least seven buildings, blew in the fronts of the opposite houses on Broad Street, wrenched shutters and doors from buildings at some distance from the immediate scene of the explosion, propelled bricks and other missiles through the air, spread the fire far and wide so that the entire neighborhood was at once in a blaze, and most unfortunately covered up the fire company's hoses." After this, the firemen could, only with great difficulty, obtain any control over the conflagration. This new blaze spread south, down as far as Bowling Green Park, the very tip of the island, in total destroying over 300 and 350 buildings, most of which had already been partially damaged by the blaze ten years before. The financial cost to the city was great, although significantly less than that of the blaze of 1835, so it ended up somewhere between 6 million and 10 million dollars. Now, this fire might have grown to swallow up all of downtown had the Croton Reservoir not been completed a few years before, providing a steady stream of water to put out the flames. Now, as you heard, this was one advantage that the unfortunate fire volunteers in 1835 did not have. Sadly though, perhaps due to the awful and sudden explosion, the fire of 1845 does outdo the 1835 inferno in one unfortunate statistic, the number of fatalities. At least 30 people died on that July morning, including a few volunteer firefighters like the lawyer Augustus L. Cowdrey, whose body was never found. It's through Cowdrey's memory that you can actually find a reminder of the 1845 fire in downtown Manhattan. In the graveyard at Trinity Church on Broadway and Wall Street sits a tall obelisk, a fireman's memorial engraved with the names of many fallen fighters of the 19th century, including the name of Augustus L. Cowdery. Now, on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, you'll find some rather beautiful paintings and lithographs of these two disasters. In addition, please follow us on social media, Instagram at BoweryBoysNYC, Facebook and on Twitter at Barry Boys. I would like to thank all of you who support us on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash Barry Boys. Your contributions help produce a new Barry Boys podcast. And you get your own exclusive audio feed with that as well. Tom and I just released a new episode of our after show conversation that's exclusive to Patreon. That's a show called The Takeout. And in this particular episode, uh, we talk all things Beatles related to our last show. And you get to hear a very surprising story that Tom tells about his meeting with a certain offspring of the Beatles. You're just going to have to listen to that to find out. So find us at Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.